Let me recap before uh, uh, starting today's message. We've been studying Paul's letter to Ephesians, and Ephesians is uh, divided evenly by two sections of three chapters. First three chapters speak about theology and uh, doctrine, and the last three chapters talk about ethics and devotions. In our last time, two weeks ago, we talked about the most important practice of every church in the first part of chapter 4. What is the foremost priority that Paul urged for us to do every effort to keep the bond of Christ, a bond of the Holy Spirit? What is that? What is the number one thing about the church that we should protect? Unity. Amen. Unity. And today I'm going to talk to the second half of chapter 4, and actually second half of chapter 4 and then first part of chapter 5 is a, like a, a, a large uh, section that joined together has a three different therefore, therefore, therefore. And today I'll do the first two therefore, and uh, next Sunday uh, Han will do the second therefore in chapter 5. Today's topic is about Christian clothing. Clothing. And what Christians should wear, and why, and how. Okay? So we're going to talk about fashion today. You can't tell much about somebody by looking at their fashion. Where is the Suman? Okay. When I need him, he's not here. Anyway. You know, I noticed that uh, these alums of a particular university from North, they really love to wear their school sports apparels. You know, nine of ten times I saw them, they wear their school t-shirts or sweatshirts or something. And uh, well, they, that's they are. <laughs> and uh, how about me? Do you notice something about today's my fashion? If you guess correctly, you will be the, 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 uh, you know, the honored guest today. Okay. It's kind of a, uh, today, oh, shoes. Well, some of you even noticed the shoes. Yes, yes. I kind of decked it up. You know? <laughs> and uh, today, this clothing means Jamie is not here. <laughs> because if oh, Jamie is here, she wouldn't allow me to wear something like this shirt, this color of shirt. First time I wore it, she said, so tacky, so flamboyant. Why does a pastor wear some kind of attention-seeking shirts like that? It's not appropriate. Covered it. And uh, well, she left for vacation. At, uh, with a mom in New York, and uh, she left me in vacation. So, <laughs> you know, one thing I love about end of October is that uh, our retreat, and the other one is actually uh, last Sunday of October is a Reformation Sunday for Christians, for Protestants. And uh, Reformation Sunday, and also uh, Ref October is, has a, one of my favorite uh, celebrations, Oktoberfest. Have you heard? Okay, Oktoberfest. Yes, so in lieu of my wife's absence today, I'm going to 
throw the Oktoberfest. Belated Oktoberfest in my house. So anyone who's interested in Oktoberfest, talk to me afterward. We'll, uh, if you take a cornerstone, you understand that there's a theological reason behind the Oktoberfest. I have a reason to celebrate Oktoberfest. So come and find out. So if you're interested in Oktoberfest, at Pastor Paul's house this afternoon, uh, Cornerstone Bible Study, by the way, canceled. So instead of Bible Study, we'll have Oktoberfest. So please note that. Okay? Now, go, going back to the dress. So I checked it out, the uh, well-known book called The Dress for Success. Dress for Success. And that book say loud and clear that what you wear is who you are. Clothes makes a person. And the writer, the Susan Young, she said, people will form impressions, assumptions, opinions, and judgment all within few short seconds to make a favorable list, uh, first impression, make these seconds count, enhance your image by choosing clean, <laughs> appropriate attire that reflect confidence and professionalism. And in business meeting, she said, the, uh, your appearance matters. Your image educates others on how you want to be approached. Every time you go out, you reflect an image that tells others how to treat you. They are sizing you up and making assumption of what you, are, what you do for a living, your income level, your current level of success in life, based on solely on your appearance. So successful people maintain an impeccable image. Why? Because they know that their image is part of their brand. An image is an outside indicator of who you are as a person. So dress for the role that you want. And I remember the Ralph Lauren you know, advertisement a long time ago. He said, the, I don't design clothes. I design dreams. <laughs> and then, you know, we're paying for the, you know, that, whatever, that, side, that little logo, we're paying a, a lot of money. But anyway. And uh, dress for the role you want. Keep your, look, uh, keep your look fresh and update. Remember, you are top representative and spokesperson of your brand. Dress for where you want to go, not just where you are. What do people in a higher position wear? Observe and follow their lead. To upgrade your look might cost a little more than what you usually spend on clothes. However, it's better to pay a little more for the image you really want to project. So today, I want to do more than upgrading your fashion. I want to actually empower your fashion. Because I'm talking about not just a dress for success. I'm talking about dress for ultimate success, the everlasting success, which I believe is a holiness. We're talking about dress for holiness. Holiness is a very special attribute of God. God is the only one who is holy. So when you talk about holiness, you're talking about becoming like God. And so when you become like God, you will enjoy God's glory together forever. And the holiness, I, I must say, simply means a divinely different. Holiness doesn't mean that uh, morally perfect or you're religiously so you know, uh, uh, impeccable. No. Holiness simply, word means different. Utterly, divinely different. Just as a God's you know, wisdom is a higher than ours, God's foolishness is a better than any human wisdom, 
God's weakness is stronger than any human power. God is utterly different. And that is a holiness. And then Paul uses this section that we should be like a people of God and be like God. And for that, he talks about image of a dress or clothing. So simply today, Paul was calling Ephesians and all Christians that close yourself with a Christ. Close yourself with a Christ. And so today's message, I want to talk about three things that are, you know, what to wear and why to, why, you know, why or, and then how. And one of the Paul's common metaphors for Christian life is a changing clothes. More than anyone in the Bible, Paul contrasts the life in Christ and life outside of Christ through the expression of a bring on, bring off. So let me bring out today's main text. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 20 to 24. Let me read. That however is not the way of life you learn. When you heard about Christ, you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desire. And to be made new in attitude of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in your true in true righteousness and holiness. Paul used this word prone and pro. Take off your old self, prone your new self. So many times in his writings it comes out. Romans 13, 12, Paul said, Night is far gone, day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and prone the armor of light. And 1 Thessalonians 5a, Paul said, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, have put on the breastplate of faith and love and helmet, the hope of salvation. And later in the Ephesians chapter 6, we see the Paul's full development of a spiritual armor. Put on the whole armor of God. And then Colossians, Paul repeatedly says, chapter 3, Prone yourself, which being a renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. Verse 12, prone this, God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all this, prone love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I think that Paul uses metaphor of clothing for two reasons. One is a biblical, the other one is cultural. Biblical? Because clothing ourselves with, with God reminds us of a story in Genesis. Anyone? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, before God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, God took off their shabby clothes made of fig leaves and Lord, Lord God made a garment of a skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And later Paul connects this, this, you know, some Christians, well, when you take a cornerstone, you will know this is a proto-evangelism or first gospel because innocent animal was sacrificed for the clothing of Adam and Eve. Paul later, in the first Corinthians chapter 15, he connects to Christ's death and resurrection he said, for this imperishable body must put on the 
uh, perishable body must put on the imperishable, for this mortal body must put on the immortality. Christ clothed us with the immortality and imperishable life. And also, I believe there is not only theological reason, but also uh, changing clothes was a culturally relevant and a powerful analogy. Because the Greco-Roman world or society, has a, it was a based on strict classism. Everybody belonged to a certain class. And then they enforced their social order or classism through fashions and clothing. For instance, when you see the Roman clothing, what do you remember? What is the famous Roman clothing that we see in the uh, Animal House move, type of a movie like Animal House and the party? Toga. Toga, right? Yeah. To us, toga is nothing but just, you know, clothes or just, a, you know, long fabrics you just wrap around. Toga was only preserved for the aristocrat and senators. And even if you are a free man and you made a lot of money, you could not wear a toga. And a few literature says the uh, Rome, some uh, uh, free man, not a slave, free man, became a wealthy and bought many property and so forth. And their dream was always to wear a toga because that's the ultimate symbol of a prestige. And the few times they tried to wear it and they sneak into that, uh, the, you know, whatever, uh, boots, the, the box seat of the uh, 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 gladiator game, and then once they discovered that they are not an aristocrat, they are kicked out of their boxes. And what about the slaves? There was no standard custom of slaves. They just wore at the taste of their masters. And the slaves, especially working in the mines, they actually worked and naked. And then there was, uh, during the Nero's time, there was a proposal that uh, uh, let's be a little humane to our slaves. And then let's, uh, somebody made a proposal that all slaves to wear uh, uniform, particular type of clothing. And <coughs> once that idea came in, everybody said, oh, that's not a bad idea because sometimes we don't know who is a who. So, you know, uniform would be good. And uh, Nero's tutor, Seneca, he jumped on right away and said, that is a horrible idea. Because once slaves began to wear uniform, they will realize that they are overwhelming majority, and they are mistreated, and they will revolt. And another historian, Appian, said, slave dress as well as his master signals the end of a stable, well-ordered society. So Romans are very sensitive about clothing. If you're born in certain class, you stick to the clothing of that time. And you know, this, by the way, during our retreat, Pastor Jeremy talks about, um, talk about Book of James, and the one topic was a favoritism, right? Do you remember how early Christians, they kind of uh, favored the rich over the poor? James chapter 2, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 2 says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and poor men in the filthy old clothes also come in. You show special attention to men wearing fine clothes and say, Here is a good seat for you. And say to the poor man, Go away or sit on my, you know, uh, my foot. 
So even favoritism came from fancy clothing. So when Paul said, Christians, Christ gave us new clothing. And we need to wear his clothes. We need to clothe ourselves with him. And for this, I want to share a quote from the uh, well, uh, Christian writer, Henry Nouwen, writer. Some of you heard me mention Henry Nouwen. He's, uh, you know, he's a writer, author of uh, Wounded Healer. And this is what Henry Nouwen said. Being a believer means being clothed in Christ. Paul said, every one of you that has been baptized has been clothed in Christ. Galatians 3.26 and let your armor be the Lord Jesus Christ. Wear Jesus Christ and let him defend you. And this being clothed in Christ is much more than wearing a cloth that covers our misery. It refers to a total transformation that allows us to say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ, yet I'm alive. Yet it is no longer I who live in me, but Christ who lives in me. Thus we are living Christ in the world. Jesus, who is a God made of flesh, continues to reveal himself in our own flesh. Indeed, true salvation is a becoming Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I really love this, this phrase. True salvation is not going to heaven. It's more than that. It's a becoming Christ. How do we become Christ? We close ourselves with a Christ. Now, the second point I want to share with you is uh, why do we want to wear, uh, uh, close ourselves with Christ? That Paul's text actually, chapter 4, verse 17 and 19. Why do we have to close with Christ? It's because we have a different journey to walk. walk. Unlike uh, non-believers or pagans, we have a different journey that God called us. So let's look at the chapter 4, verse 17 and 19, and then let's read together. One, two, three. So, I'll tell you this. Insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart, having lost all sensitivity they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are the full of greed. Earlier in the verse 17, Paul said, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Actually, the word live there is a, is a walk. It's a peripateo. It's a you no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And Paul said, I insist. The word insist in Greek is a martereo, which means actually testify. I'll bear witness. It's, NIV translation is sort of weak. It is a solemn, solemn calling. I bear witness that those who are called by Christ, we walk different journey of a life. That's what Paul is saying. And this, is a, this word, uh, martereo, is a serious legal term from which we got the word martyr. It's a truth worth dying for. So you don't just insist any information or fact. Something important that you bet on your life, that is what you insist or you testify. So Paul is saying that 
This is something I testify with my life, and you better hear it. If you, have, if you believe in Christ, now you walk with Christ. And walking with Christ means we walk different road than non-Christians. And then he described the non-Christians' walk here. He said their road or their journey is a futile. Futility of their thinking. Futile. Greek word for futile in my old test, actually it means aimless, wandering. It's a vain, empty, transient. It is unfruitful. You know, we all have a whole life journey. Some life journey is unfruitful, just tiring. Some life is hard, but it's meaningful. I lived more than half a century, so I've seen some of my friends and then others that I know. I began to see that uh, the little life convergence that, that, that I saw at the beginning now is totally coming out into two different class or you know, contrast. Truly, life for myself, life without God, is nothing but a pursuit of very self-centered gratification. In that, you might have a pleasure from here and there, but they, at the end, you feel so empty, so futile, so tired. Whereas a life for a life after God, it might be hard, costly at times, but at the end, there is a meaning, there is a joy, there is a gratitude that lasts more than anything else in this world. And Paul, here talking about how the futility of their thinking came. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to hardening of their hearts. As a result, having lost all sensitivity, they turned over sensuality and impurity. Paul here connects the darkness of a mind comes from hardness of a heart. Their thinking is darkened. Not because they are not smart, but their heart is a hardened. Heart is a hardened. It's not because they are not educated. It's not that they are not able. It's not that you know, uh, 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 you know, street smart or you know, what are, proficient. Because of their heart. And here is the truth. When our heart is not after God. Our heart has a serious spiritual problem. Somebody called it heart has sclerosis, spiritual sclerosis. You know, those are medical people, you know, sclerosis. That is, artery is that, you know, all, it does not pump up, you know, uh, uh, blood where it should go. And oftentimes, and then later, Paul said in, Paul said in this passage where the your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. You know, oftentimes we, we hear, we say, we, we, we say words like this to each other, that follow your heart, right? Follow your heart. You know? I, I do that. I have a, a, one of my daughters who are so always caring and accommodating that uh, 
You know, whenever we go to a restaurant and they want to order something, she has a hard time to make up her mind. Because she wants to sort of order something that everyone, you know, I mean, I mean as a result, she became a very indecisive. So, you know, we tell, we tell that, I, we tell, I tell the daughter, follow your heart. Follow your heart. What do you want to eat? You know? Make up your mind. That's According to this passage, if you follow your heart without God, your heart, you will not be happy. <laughs> That's what it says. You know, Jeremiah 17.9 said, Their heart is a deceitful above all things and desperately sick, and who can understand it? I want to tell you this. Don't be deceived by your heart. Don't be gullible to your heart. Your heart needs a Jesus more than anything else. Heart without Jesus will deceive you. It will make your life feel so meaningless and futile. You know, last week I was uh, searching, uh, 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 searching my friend in internet and uh, checking out his new church they just joined in Bay Area. And, uh, and church name was um, True North. Is it, is it cool? Church name? I thought, oh, is this a Bay Area thing? The name the True North, you know? And there's, and then back of mind, what is the True North? I heard the North Point Community Church, one mega church in the uh, Atlanta, you know. I heard a lot of North Star or whatever North, but True North? Is that a fake North? Soon as I said that and I saw, I saw their website, this is what their website said. Did you know that a compass Compass points to the magnetic North Pole instead of a true North. There is a uh, declination or difference, which declination or difference, which if not corrected, can take a traveler completely off course. In the same way, we believe compasses of our heart often points to the wrong things in the wrong direction. In order for us to be correctly oriented, oriented. We need a gospel of Jesus Christ to point us to the true north of his love, grace, and salvation. Why don't you follow? What, we don't just follow our heart, but we follow our true heart. What is your true heart? Heart with Jesus. Heart in Jesus. Isn't that so true? Speaking about following heart, There is a member of my first ministry in Bay Area. This particular brother, a few years ago, when I heard about his, uh, his, his uh, latest update, I was so sad. I was so sad. Because this particular brother, he has all the reasons in the world to be happy. Hey, let me tell you what. He is tall and handsome and smart. As a, he, has, he, he, was, he had a family pedigree. His father was a, a professor of physics in Princeton University. Uh, somebody and uh, South Koreans expected him to be the first Korean Nobel Prize winner. That caliber. His mother was successful businesswoman, studied uh, various uh, successful high-tech company in Bay Area. 
he is not just a tall and handsome, he's a very athletic guy. He was a uh, member of a UC Santa Barbara water polo, which was a number one team in the nation back then. And he was an Olympian. And uh, because of uh, Jimmy Carter boycott to Moscow Olympic, he couldn't go to Olympic. And uh, that's why he hate Democrats, but anyway. <laughs> and uh, he is he, a great skier. He went to University of Colorado Law School just for ski. And uh, by the way, he gave me a, his feet and my feet are the same size. So, you know, he bought a lot of skis. And in the process, he gave me one new ski. And that, you know, he didn't like it anymore. And it was, I didn't, you know, almost new. And I took it. I said, thank, thank. And then, and then I went to heavenly. And I almost died. You know, because I'm an intermediate guy. And this ski, I didn't know much about ski, was a long and narrow. This is an advanced skier ski. So anyway, I almost, yeah, I kind of anyway, hated him afterward. But uh, I mean, this, and then he's married to a wonderful wife. Our church pianist. I mean, she's she so wonderful. And the daughter is so beautiful, so kind. And he, he I mean, just to give you, but, but this brother, he just follows his heart, nothing else. Anything is a heart passion he does. And initially his passion was good. Because when I met him, we, you know, he was into tennis. He, so we play tennis. And then a little bit later, he, he moved on to golf. Do you know he became a single handicap golfer within two years? Because he played an 18 hole before the work, before he go to his company that he owned. And he played a nine hole before he went home. Every day, he played. And then within two years, he became a, the best golfer in our church, and so forth. Guess what happened? Later, he left the church. I still regret that I let him go too early, too, too, too nicely. Because this guy was so, I, 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 well, even today you suffer from my uh, Spanglish sermon. Imagine 20 years ago, he was hearing my sermon and this, so he, was, he had a hard time. And then when he said that he, you know, he feels very uncomfortable in our church, even though his wife loves. You know, out of my own inferior complex, I, oh yeah, I understand. So if there's any church that make you go, grow and go. I regret to this day, especially when I found that. You know, I should ask that, do you have a Jesus in your heart? Do you follow Jesus in your heart? That's what I'm pastor supposed to ask. But instead, I, I, out of my own inferiority, I let him go too early and he left. And he joined the mega church. Yeah, mega church. Meh, mega church. Well known mega church in San Jose. And then last time I heard he was into the uh, sailing. He's a boat racing. And to make a long story short, he became a drug addict. He divorced a beautiful wife. And uh, I didn't hear. We know, all of us who knew him, we don't hear about him anymore. And the reason I tell his story, I share his life story with you, is that here is somebody who has all the you know, blessings 
other world to be happy. And he followed his heart. And in his heart, there was no Christ. Just his own pleasure and excitement. He didn't mean bad. I don't think he intended to become a drug addict, but he became. It's not uh, your heart that will bless you. It's a Christ in your heart. So question I have all, all, all of us. Do you, what do you have in your heart? You know, anytime you hear the slogan of Capital One commercial, what's in your wallet? Let me rephrase it. When you hear that slogan one more time, what's in your heart? What's in your heart? Let me move on to the final point of our message, which is now we know that we are close with Christ. This is an incredible privilege from God. And now we also know why we're wearing this you know, dress or clothes with Christ for holiness. Now actually, how does a dress called Christ, clothes with Christ, does for me? The area of works, area of works. That one comes of verse 25 to 32. That was this passage, let's read responsibly, brothers and sisters. So brothers, we read verse 25. Ready? One, two, three, here we go. Therefore, each of you must put off a falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Do not give the devil a foothold. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful, building others up according to their need, that it may benefit those who listen. Get rid of all bitterness and rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. I want to point out the three specific areas of works for our holiness. Three specific areas of work for our holiness. I came up with the acronym SAAW, SAW, because you know when you wear nice clothes, other people saw you, right? So SAW, SAW, I SAW, SAW, SAAW, SAW. Other people saw. First S, speech to edify. When you dress up with the Christ, you're clothed with the Christ. Your speech will edify other people. Here Paul said, verse 25, Therefore each one of you must proffer falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Even last you know, passage, Paul talking about speak the truth in love. You know, speak the truth in love. And today's passage, Paul talks about speech twice, at the beginning and the end of sections. So verse 25, he says, speak truthfully to your neighbor. And verse 29, again, he said, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So twice, Paul said, speak to edify other people. Speak to love other people. Encourage other people. 
The first and last sign of being clothed with Christ is a Christ anoint our speaking. He transformed our tongue. And uh, you know, what's the nickname of Christ in the Gospel of John? What did John call Christ? His nickname is a word. In the beginning there was a word. Word was with God. And word was God. And then verse 14, word became a flesh dwelt among us. And we know that is Jesus Christ. If our Savior and the Lord is a word, who are we? We are little words. Our speech must reflect the word, the living word of Christ. And then whenever Christ spoke, there is always truth and love. So question we all have is that, is my speech healing and creating? Or is it my speech is hurting and is really create a conflict? You know, James said, according to the Bible, you know who is the perfect man? James said, chapter 3, Though if any, any, if any man who controls his tongue, he is a perfect man. That's a biblical definition of perfect man. And uh, I really fall short of that biblical definition of perfect man. And uh, before Jamie went to uh, New York for vacation, she, she kind of called me out, called time out for me and, and said, Honey, don't you think you and I kind of uh, uh, joke too much? <laughs> And don't you think our talk is so, it's not, a, it's not a wholesome? It's not really uplifting? And uh, I, I said, yeah. <laughs> 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 and then she gave a specific people's name and don't make fun of them anymore. I think you going uh, uh, excessive of uh, pastors, you know, whatever. I said, yeah. And then we'll see. But I agree with her. Because sometimes my intention is, I just, I'm a gregarious, as you know, I'm a gregarious guy. I became a more extrovert than before. I love, I really love everyone. And so I, I talk. And sometimes my talk is just automatic. It's, it's controlled by my own thinking rather than Holy Spirit. And it hurt people. And it really, and then I repent. But I, I, I really need to work on it. All right. The next one, first one is also speech. Next one, A stands for anger. Verse 26, Paul said, in your anger do not sin. Oh, thank God. Paul said that. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give a devil a foothold. Okay. Paul didn't say don't be angry. Paul said, in your anger do not sin. That means Paul understands we can be angry. I bet Paul had a lot of anger too. Thank God. And Paul said, question is, don't let anger take over you. Don't be angry also for long. Don't let your anger go unchecked. It is okay to be angry. Sometimes, because there's such thing as, a, you, know, you know, just anger, right? And then, especially when the you know, innocent suffer or when the injustice happens, you should be angry, right? 
But Paul said, no matter what caused you anger, don't let it go over sunset. That means pray. Pray about it. And here, Paul said, verse 25, if we don't check our anger, what happened? It will give a devil a foothold. Right? And the actually Greek word for foothold is a topos, from which we have an English word topography. Topos means, uh, uh, what is that, uh, uh, place. Simply means a place or region. Topography, right? That means Satan makes a sort of a inroad through our anger. Our anger, so foothold is a good translation. When we are persisting in our anger, that's how Satan enters in our heart and establishes a fortress, small fortress in our heart. Anger in the hand of a devil can be like a wildfire in California that destroys everything indiscriminately. Do you remember the first murder in the Bible? In Genesis chapter 4? How did it happen? You know, if you look at Genesis chapter 4, after the Cain offered the offering, his offering was uh, rejected, Cain was uh, very angry. His face was uh, downcast. And then God said to Cain, why, you are, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accept your offering will not be accepted? If you do not what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You know, first murder, murder in the Bible came out of anger. And the scary thing, it came out of, the anger came out of failed worship. Worship led anger. Anger led murder. Not a stranger, own brother. Worship is serious matter. And this is why you know, religious you know, war is a horrible, the most brutal war of all times. And God told Cain, God warned Cain that uh, control your anger. Work through it. Otherwise, anger will be like a beast crouching at your door and attack. And how often times do we have uh, this kind of serious, uncontrolled uh, anger coming out of uh, control? And, and like those wildfire, it kind of burn our relationship and make us say things that we regret. <coughs> last one, I want to move on to quickly to the last one. The W is a work, work ethic or work. Paul said the last thing about being holy is the verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must walk, must work, doing something useful with their own hands, and they may be something to share with those in need. This is the third and final call of a Christian sanctification. That is our work. Christians, we have a different goal in our marketplace. We don't just work for the honest gain. We work for helping others in need. We work not just for our survival and satisfaction, but we work for others' well-being. Goal of a Christian workers is to make others successful. You know, our definition of success is to make others successful. 
We are not out there in the marketplace to win a dog-eat-dog -dog world or become a top dog, but we are out there to contribute our professional community and they ultimately represent Christ. You know, our retreat theme was a faith that works. I really you know, think it's true. If we have authentic biblical faith, it must work in our workplace. It must be really reveal itself in our workplace. Let me close today's message. Paul once again used a clothing metaphor to tell us that we represent Christ. Because Christ took off our dirty, filthy clothes of sin and selfishness and clothed us with his righteousness and love. And we are Christ's friends. You know, all the famous uh, fashion brands are named after founders. Uh, the 10 still oldest fashion houses still are in operation. Hermes, 1870-30, named after Hermes. Louis Vuitton, 1854. Uh, John Levin, I don't know who that is. And uh, uh, Chanel, 1903. Gabriel Coco Chanel, Prada, Mario Prada, 1913, Christian Dior, 1946, Givenchy, first name Hubert, Valentino, Yves Saint Laurent, all the top brands are named after founders. Christians, we are named after our founders. Question. What brand are you wearing? Am I wearing Christ? Or am I wearing something else? What is the ultimate fashion? What is the ultimate dress that I might aim for? I really pray that for us, we all wear Christ. We wear Christ. As a result, we edify one another with the kind words, encouraging words. And that we really open up and share our angers and diffuse each other's anger with compassion and patience. And that we really check each other that our works in community and workplace is really, really representing Christ. Let's pray.